Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Amy DeRoss. Amy is the co-founder and CEO of San Francisco-based Venetti. The company provides software to manage the delicate logistical dance required to administer cell and gene therapies. Venetti has raised about $115 million in three venture rounds of financing. Its backers include Cardinal Health, the big medical distributor, as well as traditional venture firms like Canaan Partners and Section 32, plus the big cell therapy players Novartis and Gilead Sciences. All those people are apparently converging on the challenge, one of the key challenges, of the fast-growing world of cell and gene therapy. In a world with probably a thousand investigational new drug applications on file at the FDA, does it make sense to have a thousand different bespoke software and logistical solutions for cell therapies? Or does it make sense to have a standard operating system of sorts to make life easier for investigators, for companies, for regulators, and for payers? Finetti represents a wager on this field moving towards standardized software and a desire to be that company that sets and delivers on that standard. This has taken a while to sink in with the biopharma industry. When I interviewed Duras in February of 2020, she recalled the company's early days. At the time, I wrote, Big pharma and venture-backed startups would often play coy when asked about how they plan to manage their supply chains, logistics, manufacturing, and other crucial behind-the-scenes details for personalized cell therapy. Then came the shift. Fewer companies seemed inclined to build their own homebrew software. More started playing to their strengths in biology, clinical development, regulatory affairs. More were willing to have open conversations with a software vendor that has specialized expertise, capable of handling the precious cargo of human cell and gene therapies that requires an orchestrated industrial-scale ballet. Essentially, the industry started to realize this behind-the-scenes stuff is harder than it looks. It was good to catch up with Amy about a year later and learn more about her journey to this moment of opportunity and really this chance to play a key role behind the scenes in the cell and gene therapy revolution. Now, before we dive in, a word from the sponsor of the long run, Synthigo. Synthigo is a genome engineering company that enables the acceleration of life science research and development in the pursuit of improved human health. The company leverages gene editing, machine learning, and automation to build platforms for science at scale. By enabling unprecedented access to cutting-edge genome engineering, Synthigo is at the forefront of innovation, accelerating the development of truly engineered biology. Synthigo's experience in CRISPR, combined with their proprietary software and technology, means you have a trusted partner whether you are at early stages of basic research or ready to take your therapy to the clinic. Visit Synthigo.com slash Timmerman to learn more. I'll say it again. Synthigo.com slash Timmerman to learn more. And if you like listening to The Long Run, check out Timmerman Report. This is where you'll get my in-depth coverage of startups, biotech trends, and thought-provoking commentary from a diverse cast of contributing writers. Go to TimmermanReport.com for details on how to subscribe. Now, please join me and Amy Duras on the long run. Amy DeRoss, welcome to the long run. Thanks. So great to be here, Luke. So first off, before we dive in, Amy, how are you doing personally? Oh, thanks so much for asking. You know, we are 
counting our blessings every day. Thankfully, the uh, the team is healthy. My family and friends are 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 healthy. Uh, I think we're able to work remotely in a safe environment. So we uh, we feel among the extraordinarily lucky people in the world right now. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it is a, a time to uh, count our blessings for those of us who uh, are able to work from home. Um, now, real quick, uh, before we like do the full kind of chronological story of Venetti, uh, how, how's your business doing in the past year? Thankfully, we're doing great, Luke, especially all things considered with the backdrop of COVID-19. As you know, cell and gene therapy has been directly impacted on the clinical discovery side and even in commercial distribution because of the protocols we serve having a a reliance directly on ICU access. So uh, most of the protocols that we serve in cell and gene therapy are are seeking to avoid cytokine release syndrome. The way to do that is to ensure each patient who receives a therapy has at least theoretical access to ICU bed if they should need it. And so naturally in the COVID environment, cell and gene therapy administration has been deprioritized in many cases in many markets, but we're seeing that come back uh, as uh, COVID is better understood and management is uh, more proactive. And obviously with the onset of the vaccines, we're very optimistic. So, uh, and I think just the the other piece that again has been very, very uh, uh, advantageous and, and, a, and a lucky lucky strike for Vinetti is that we had a distributed work model ahead of this global pandemic and software can be created in numerous places and uh, often from home or from remote work environments. So we've been really lucky that we haven't really missed a beat in terms of our production and delivery internally uh, and in, in, in cooperation with our customers. Well, it's an interesting set of complications here externally with the ICUs, as you mentioned, but um, I mean, there's still the unchanged fact here that we're in a cell and gene therapy revolution and, and you're setting out to serve it. And uh, that that will be true uh, when we come out the other side on this, for sure. Um, okay, so let's uh, rewind a bit and, and tell our listeners a little bit about you and how you got to this point. Um, so from the beginning, like where uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway. So one of the few families that actually originated in D.C. and stuck around, uh, saw a lot of people come and go as we grew up in the the changing cycles of uh, politics and administrations. Huh. So what did your uh, parents do there? Well, naturally, they were both lawyers uh, and uh, different kinds of law, but they also both came from highly political families, so very involved in politics. My great-grandmother was a suffragette and was the first elected female politician in the state of New Jersey, um, and lots of other very active uh, uh, politicians and and, politicians. campaign operatives and the like in both families, both sides of my family. Oh, wow. So did they practice in law firms or in uh, in public sector agencies or what, what kind of work did they do? All of the above. Yeah. So my dad is still practicing. Actually, he's a labor attorney and he's been in and out of different administrations in firms, worked for um, 
nonprofits. My mom uh, was the first female DA in DC. So she's been a prosecutor. She's worked um, on on banking law. She's been in other policy uh, formats, venues, in and out of government as well. So uh, very, very typical DC family in that there's always this revolving door in and out of the sort of one 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 horse one cart town of of politics in DC. Uh huh. And so there were a lot of dinner table type conversations about current events uh, and politics oh, yeah. and all that. Oh yes. In fact, they still occur when we do have the good fortune of getting together as a family. But we were actually assigned different sides of debates as uh, my brothers and I growing up in our family in DC. It was uh, kind of a. a almost a caricature of a DC family, if you will, lots of debating and high, you know, high decibel discussions back and forth <laughs> Okay, over, yeah. over a roast turkey, you know, that kind of a thing, that's kind of a setting. <laughs> uh, sounds like healthy debate, <laughs> I would hope. Um, did, so uh, how many siblings? Two brothers, yeah, two younger brothers. Okay, so you're the oldest? Yes, Okay. Yep. And, and so what kind of uh, uh, student were you or as a young person, did, did you think, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I, you know, I really didn't know for the longest time. I assumed that I would become a lawyer or a judge like everybody else in my family. Um, but, um, but I, what happened to me, Luke, you know, in the midst of all these dinnertime debates and the various sort of um, issue activism orientation that was just our daily life walking outside of, you know, of our home and school every day um, was that I, I really could never put my finger on the law. What was the law? I got a lot of very sort of existential discussions going with my parents and their friends and other, you know, congressional members and, and politicians. We knew just as, you know, as our, as our extended friends and family circle and whenever I came up against the question, what is the law? It's a set of, it's a, a set of mores, a set of taboos, a code of, of operating, a, an, an, an operational mechanism for society. But I could never really get to the essential element of what is the law. There was always a, this big range for interpretation. And for me, ultimately, that became just too ethereal. Uh, I really wanted to do something with my time that I could measure and that I could sh- that could show real benefit to other people. And I got very interested in healthcare very early among all the issues we were exposed to in DC. So those two kind of came together, the need to do something very, very concrete and make a real contribution and have it be in the area of healthcare. So I really oh, just that's... started the family business, if you will, uh, at, at one point when I was a teenager, along with other rebellious acts. That's uh, really interesting, uh, you know, as an answer. I, as a journalist, you know, coming at this from having covered city hall and county government at the local level, you know, I would have said something like, kind of the schoolhouse rock sort of answer that the, a bill is, or, you know, a law is the expression of the will of the people. And, you know, you right. do see how the sausage gets made. And, you know, that's a little bit disconcerting the first few times you see it. Um, yeah. But, um, but anyway, um, that, that's kind of what I would tell my kids, you know, where, where laws come from. But anyway. Um, so good answer. You, it <laughs> is a good answer. And it's an accurate one. They're really, it is a living, breathing organism, the law. And so, it, you know, I think if you're comfortable with that, that particular kind of uncertainty and really driven to interpret the law 
um, very narrowly, you know, as a, as a, as an expert, that's great. And I'm so glad people love doing that. It just really wasn't for me. So you, uh, you go off to college, uh, Stanford. So you're getting, you know, to the other coast far away. What, what were you trying to do? Uh, what, what, what are you thinking at those, in those years? <laughs> yeah, it's probably pretty obvious. I did go about as far away from DC as you can, uh, humanly, uh, but still be in the, the dominion of the United States. I, I was really fascinated by California and California represented, it's interesting. I, I really wasn't, in, uh, intrigued by on the policy front, how many, new policy frontiers uh, California charted for the rest of the country. And so that was an interesting and very um, sort of familiar and native introduction to California. We studied California as like, whoa, what's this sort of most populous state out there on the frontier doing really innovative things um, and, and trying out new policy. And then frankly, I just really wanted to see a different environment. I wanted to meet people from different parts of the country. And I really wanted to, uh, what was really attractive, particularly about Stanford was this openness for lots of cross-disciplinary pollination and really a, an opportunity as a student, even an undergrad to invest in your own pathway and put that pathway together, perhaps with seeming disparate parts and not having to adhere to a really uh, traditional kind of mode of, of focus and study. And I loved that idea. I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, when I went to, to undergrad, I knew it wasn't law. <laughs> that was about it. And so I felt like I could really experiment in that environment out in California in a way that probably wasn't as open to me on, on the Eastern seaboard. It's one of the cool things when you you pick a college that, you know, even when you're 18, how many people know what they really want to do at that age? Um, but if you pick a place like Stanford, you could pretty comfortably say, you know, whatever it is that you want to pursue, it's it's going to be pretty good. <laughs> they got a, they got a department there that's, you know, uh, ranking pretty high and, and you'll find your way. Very um, lucky. Yeah, exactly. So how, how did it how did your interest turn toward healthcare? So really, a my interest in healthcare got started as a child. So I got very involved in activism around access for patients to informed uh, consent-driven clinical trial activity, lots of work um, with other patient advocacy groups around supporting basic and translational research. Um, again, we, uh, we were heavily involved as a family early on in the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation Network, and that was just a wonderful training ground for any political activist, frankly, of any kind, but particularly focused on medical science and healthcare access. They do just a marvelous job. Um, and, and so we were sort of indoctrinated in the JDRF uh, tactics and strategies and barnstorming Congress and that was my real introduction. And I, I just loved the way in which that patient group and then the, the more patient groups I became familiar with really invested in not just the actual science, but the understanding of their constituents of what science meant to their future care pathways, to their families' well-being, uh, patients' well-being, caregivers' well-being. And that just was an enormously interesting and seemingly endless area to pursue. Uh, so, so my roots were really strong in childhood. And then I got to Stanford and then 
Stanford is just so wonderful in, you know, there's this open door policy. And if you bang on the door, you know, long enough, uh, you can usually get someone's attention in pretty much every department there is. Um, and if you're persistent enough, it's a place that really welcomes persistence. And so I got to know some bench scientists who happened to also be Nobel laureates and, uh, and uh, some just really amazing uh, investigators because I was really curious in understanding particularly stem cell science, all the um, sort of tip of the steer of personalized medicine back in the 90s and early 2000s when I was at Stanford, because then I also continued on to graduate school there. Um, and, and I began to stitch together this interest in where the most promising science was for medical science and where the lack of support really, really was in terms of the funding stream. And that became a, a laser focus of mine in undergrad and graduate uh, level studies. And your graduate school was MBA school, correct? Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it sounds like, I mean, you were, um, you know, piecing together the puzzle, really, of healthcare. Mm -hmm. Like you start with that awareness of patients and delivery and and, uh, and some of the policy, as you say, in DC. Mm -hmm. And then you go to Stanford and you say, wow, there's all this, there are, there's the science, there's the business models, there's there's all this other stuff on the other side of the funnel that to, you know, to, to learn about uh, and there's gaps there. Uh, and so you're finding um, where where's an interesting place for, for you to work. And so, Stem cells. How did how did you arrive on that as an area of interest? Yeah, it really went back to there was another strain of focus for me in my studies, which was bioethics. I'd always been really interested in philosophy, um, for and and again, not just uh, legal philosophy, which I got a good dose of in my childhood, but um, all different kinds of continental and other philosophies. So. I was very interested in bioethics and access to, especially to experimental science and, and medicine. And then uh, thanks to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, who again, does just an absolutely marvelous job of educating their constituents about the areas of greatest promise in medical science and, and also supports to a, about 100, $150 million a year still uh, now, in the current um, in the current organization, the leading medical science right you know right up front. So very much an activist stance, both in terms of raising awareness, but also putting putting their dollars directly in the hands of scientists. So so stem cell science had been really well articulated in that context at at the JDRF, and and that's really where I got the the initial surge of interest. And then I just happened to again be on a campus with. Uh, Irv Weissman and uh, Paul Berg, uh, folks who were doing just cutting edge science, um, building on such a remarkable uh, breadth and depth of work in their labs. And they were really wonderfully open to having a layperson, you know, kind of co-ed really know nothing <laughs> about <laughs> science other than what I could interpret and read. Um, and, and thanks to all the materials that the various patient advocacy groups put together, but just come shadow and come hang out really. I mean, that's the kind of openness that, that really is characteristic of Stanford. And, 
And that then I got to really see um, the under the hood, if you will, quite literally. And I also understood from them as uh, science activists about where they needed support, not just financial support, but again, more education understanding. There's a lot of conflation, particularly there still is to a much lesser degree, but between stem cell science and abortion. Uh, yep. right. Well, I was just going to say like, you know, uh, these were the years, right, during the Bush administration mm-hmm. when there was the uh, the ban placed on the federal funding around exactly. em- embryonic stem cell research. And Irv, you know, at the time was one of the leaders working in this area uh, and, and he understand, understood quite well the connection between science and the larger political environment and science and the business community having started companies. So I can, I can imagine why he was welcoming to someone like you uh, interested in the field and maybe could help on the, one of these other dimensions. Uh, yeah. And he was, he actually was one of the people leading the way in the, uh, there mm-hmm. was a, there was a big uh, California, um, was it a referendum uh, to, to fund what became California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, CIRM. Yes, exactly. So without Irv and Paul and Doug Melton and a whole host of other remarkable science advocate, scientist advocates um, and activists, we wouldn't we wouldn't have been able to pull together the three billion dollar funding stream that was approved by California voters in two thousand four, and was very fortunately reauthorized an additional five and a half billion dollars this past our, uh, November in that election cycle. So. And it was, they were uh, all voted in via ballot initiative. So again, it was a simple majority uh, approval by the California voters to support really what is the leading bio-research capacity uh, in, in, in our country, which really means in the world. So we've, um, the California voters have really endowed California with a very specific and lasting differentiation here in personalized medicine. Yeah. And the stem cell field has obviously made big strides since then. The whole development of IPSCs, uh, I won't talk about that today, but um, yes. you know, it's a very, very exciting enabling technology, which I'm sure you see today at Vanetti. Um, okay. So the, how did you end up going to the biotech industry? You, you, you took a job there at Navigenics? Yeah, so I so I, I co-authored and ran our stem cell initiative in California, so that to establish the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. So that was a it was actually a national campaign, even though it was focused on California electorates. Um, and then again, because there were education and fundraising activities outside of the state. But then uh, I set up that agency as their chief of staff and was looking around uh, to really get invested in the industry side. What I saw in uh, state government, because CIRM is a hybrid state organization, it's actually the most independent state agency in California, but still definitely part of state government, uh, was again, vestiges of my childhood with a lot of, you know, very heavy bureaucracy and, and, and obviously checks and balances that are important in government. So, but, but feeling a bit of um, feeling that constraint as a 30 year old or however old I was at that point. And so, um, so I did, I I did get involved in uh, a predispositional genomics company called Navigenics. I was introduced by John Doerr and Brooke Byers at Kleiner Perkins who had been big supporters of ours at uh, the stem cell effort, a statewide stem stem cell effort. Uh, So it got introduced to Dietrich Stefan and David Agus, two, you know, just remarkable people, leading genomicists, leading oncologists, who had this brave new frontier 
idea, which would apply the remarkable milestone achievement of sequencing the genome to actual care and actual proactive preventative measures in care. And that um, at that point in time, we had fewer opportunities to commercialize stem cell technology. CRISPR obviously hadn't arrived just yet. So genomics uh, and precision medicine was a, a natural place uh, to jump into uh, for someone who really wanted to use my MBA and, and get to work on the industry side. Yeah. So you're there for a couple of years and then you moved mm -hmm. over to uh, GE Ventures. What, what yeah. were you doing there? That was a really wonderful experiment at GE. For the first time ever in the history of the company, you know, since Edison, Thomas Edison founded it, uh, there was a, a, a platform developed around venture stage investing and early company incubation. So it was really an attempt for GE, who had uh, much more of a sort of later stage investment and M&A focus for its 150 plus years to put a stake in the ground in Silicon Valley, really learn uh, by doing and get uh, integrated into the, the Silicon Valley network, investing network and entrepreneurial network. My mentor, Sue Siegel, um, also, you know, really spearheaded this and was wonderful about inviting me to participate. And so I spent time both uh, really a mix of equity investing and new business creation, which is, of course, where Vanetti came into view. I remember there, you know, I know Sue, and there was just a powerhouse group of women there, her and um, Risa Stack and Rowan Chapman and, and others too, I think. Oh, um, yeah. So many. It's too, too many to name in one podcast, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're scoping um, healthcare uh, business opportunities. And with a company yeah. like GE, that, that could be pretty broad, uh, broadly defined, I guess. Um, how did your, how did you end up on the trail of something for cell therapy, service providing, picks and shovels? I mean, did you look at these kind of opportunities? Oh, yes. So I, it was a very uh, specific emphasis and focus for me. So again, one through line in my career has been personalized medicine, whether it's come uh, more focused on the precision side or the truly personalized side of on the therapeutic side and bioprocess and all of the tools and, and, and picks and axes. It's a continuum, but really that all of the focus leads to this continuous thread of truly personalized, individualized therapies and, and care and production and delivery. So that um, time spent at GE was really focused on how to work with the G Healthcare Life Sciences team to support their differentiation in the market. We all believed we had high conviction in cell and gene therapy. We were um, reappropriating some of the uh, small molecule and other bioprocess tools for this new market as quickly as possible and finding major gaps. And so the business side at at the life sciences team at GE was very vocal, very open, lots of back and forth sharing of intel and perspective on where the field, cell and gene therapy as, a, as the highest growth area uh, for therapeutics, where, where there were major gaps. And so we did a lot of work, whether it was investing in other, uh, other independent companies that were getting their start. And I really, again, trying to build for purpose to this market or, 
coming together to formulate our own ideas around where we could best shore up gaps in the market, whether inside of GE or, or externally. Now, Amy, just to clarify for folks, the timeline we're talking about, the years that you were there, I think were something like 2013 to 2017. Uh, yeah, and, and, and so was there a catalytic event or two that made you and your team say, aha, we really need to be on this? Was it something like, you know, the, the Carl June Penn group and their partnership yeah. with Novartis or, you know, because then like in rapid succession, you know, we see Juno, we see Kite just beginning. Uh, right. It was we were um, GE worked closely with and still uh, does now and under Cytiva with the, the Penn team. So Carl was very open and vocal and, and I'd say very uh, entrepreneurial in his thought process around, again, taking some really rapid cycle clinical findings, rapid cycle relative to every other investigation area, uh, and looking out to show the very, you know, very focused concern about how do we achieve mass customization? We know there are going to be clinical pathways to commercialize these products, we know they're, they, inter, they introduce the most complicated supply chain and workflow logistics requirements in the history of medicine, not just biologics. How are we going to make this come together so we can actually extend real access to patients beyond just these uh, experimental clinics or centers of excellence? So he got very, I know it, not every uh, scientific leader is willing to also parse time to think about the industrialization of the the next stage of of their discoveries. And that's, he really falls into that category. So he was an active participant. I would also just say that the the CRISPR technology, Jennifer Dwadna happened to be across the bay at Berkeley, uh, which was really fortunate for us. And uh, and and I think when we we were very you know we had wonderful channel access at GE so we were able to pretty much network our way into any key constituency whether it was scientific investigators regulators industry leaders patients healthcare uh, uh, physicians uh, providers we um, we just had an, a remarkable access so we were able to find all of these different points of view knit them together do a ton of market research and landscaping. And in the end, we came up with some several very key gaps that not just the one that uh, around chain of identity that Vanetti is addressing full force, but but a whole variety of them. But and this this sounds like, I mean, a kind of a homegrown idea. I was just going to ask you like where the idea for Vanetti came from. And it wasn't like an entrepreneur came and pitched this. It sounds right. like, I mean, it kind, of, it kind of grew up within GE Ventures. These people around the table. It grew up in the ecosystem, really. And again, Carl played a role. The Novartis team played a role. The Mayo Clinic, which is a co-founding partner of Vanetti and and obviously a a leading center of excellence for regenerative therapies and personalized medicine. Um, A number of other partners uh, in the industry side who saw really the, the tsunami of opportunity coming to address these mechanisms. Synthigo is a genome engineering company that enables the acceleration of life science research and development in the pursuit of improved human health. The company leverages gene editing, machine learning, and automation to build platforms for science at scale. By enabling unprecedented access to cutting-edge genome engineering, Synthigo is at the forefront of innovation, accelerating the development of truly engineered biology. Synthigo's experience in CRISPR, 
combined with their proprietary software and technology, means you have a trusted partner whether you are at early stages of basic research or ready to take your therapy to the clinic. Visit synthgo.com slash Timmerman to learn more. We did have cell therapy before in the form of, you know, bone marrow transplantation or, or adult stem cell transplants for various forms of hematologic malignancies. But, you know, those were kind of like, I don't know, cottage industry is not the right word, but as you say, centers of excellence, there's like a few places where you could go and get this done yeah. uh, by, by super specialized people who knew how to withdraw the cells and do the preconditioning and reinfuse them and avoid graft versus host. It was like very intricate, not the kind of thing that, you know, lends itself to a pill in a bottle that can be scaled worldwide, you know, exactly. in, in some kind of like, you know, industrialized, you know, distributed model. Exactly. No, I, Thank you. Yeah, it is. Um, we are in an entirely new paradigm of medicine with many of these cell and gene therapies. And one of the underlying shifts is that you are, uh, as a pharmaceutical company, as a biopharma company, as a researcher in uh, experimental phase, you are dependent on the physicians and healthcare providers in an entirely different way because they are participating in the manufacturing process, which has never happened before. Typically in healthcare and pharmaceuticals, the healthcare providers, regardless of what the maturity of the product was, the therapeutic they were, they were administering, whether it was stage one or it was you know, globally available in a commercial stage, they would order or enroll a patient and it, all of the manufacturing, all of the production delivery would, would happen outside of the walls of the hospital or clinic. That's just not the case in our market. You have a heavy dependency on practitioners participating in GMP manufacturing process and good manufacturing principle process, heavily regulated Different, uh, different expectations and behaviors from these very overburdened, already you know over overburdened clinicians, and then when you actually, and then actually in the manufacturing setting, not enough tools built for purpose to scale out technology because you have single batches, so everybody's therapy is individually produced. Uh, and so that's fine if you're in a phase one and you have 10 patients and you can kind of brute force with a manual production and be on the phone walking your healthcare provider partners through a process, a manufacturing process they're participating in, but it doesn't scale unless you introduce new technologies. And that's, and that's really the, that is the, the, the defining difference is that the ecosystem is working together to support single individualized therapies at scale. And that's never been a demand that we've seen in, in biologics before. It's first time. So you see an opportunity here at Venetti to create what you call um, smart plumbing. I guess that's a new frame, yeah. phrase that you <laughs> use. Well, um, can, for, for those unfamiliar, how would you describe what, what goes into the smart plumbing? Yeah, it's really PhD plumbing, isn't it? <laughs> very, <laughs> very, very smart. Um, so the, the Venetti platform is an entirely new solution for a new set of problems, as I was just referring to. And Fundamentally, what we're uh, what we're achieving in automating what's known as chain of identity or chain of custody, which is really a unique patient identifier that we assign 
from the beginning of the process for manufacturing and all the way through to the point of care when the patient receives his or her therapy. It's really to ensure that you have all of these different stakeholders helping drive a single batch, a single production effort for a single patient. And you wanna make sure that the right patient receives the right therapy at the right time. Because Luke, if you get my cells and I get your cells, then it's unfortunately likely a deadly event. So it's there's a disaster. A it's a right. disaster for the field as well, not just yes. for the patient and the doctor. And Absolutely. It, and so we are racing. We, that is really the urgency we, we feel uh, day and night in our work is we are working uh, against a, 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 an adverse event where there's a mismatch of, of therapies. And so, so that's why, for example, regulated, regulators like FDA and their counterparts have asked industry to put software like Vanetti in place before they come to apply for commercial licensure. So it's actually the first time ever in biologics history that the regulators have said, don't even bother with a BLA unless you have a system like Vanetti in place to orchestrate your supply chain. And that smart plumbing really allows the connection between the clinic and the manufacturing setting or facility and all of the other important uh, service providers and technology partners, the cold chain providers, the specialty couriers, the folks who are you know, sitting in uh, care pathway management roles on behalf of the pharmaceutical company, ensuring, again, if it's a commercial product that it's paid for, that all of the informed consent and all of the education is proper, properly administered. Those sorts of, there's so many different steps that need to come together in a single point of control. And that single point of control is Vanetti. And Vanetti ensures that each patient has a chain of identity and a chain of custody assigned to their therapeutic. And that therapeutic goes through its important process steps, gets QA'd, gets released, comes back for infusion into the patient. And that we know Luke is getting Luke's therapy, Amy's getting Amy's therapy, and all will be well. Right. And now one of your, your co-founders, Heidi Hagen, um, she worked on something like this at Dendrion a decade yeah. ago. They had to build it themselves. They were the first with an active cellular immunotherapy for cancer, yes. uh, manage the logistics, the supply chain, the, the, the patient-specific identification, provide some visibility to the investigator as well as the company and the regulators, all that yeah. stuff. Uh, but it, it, as we said, as you said earlier, you know, it doesn't scale, right? I mean, that they, they had to like piece it together themselves. Yes. And so, you know, as you begin to see other companies come along and like eyes pop open in the pharmaceutical industry about like the data coming out of Penn and Kite and Juno, et cetera. Um, suddenly a lot of people are asking themselves, boy, um, you know, can, do we need to make our own <laughs> supply chain software and manage all this complicated logistical dance or, or, or can, you know, can we buy this from somebody else um, who, who can yeah. help us so that we can focus on whatever it is we're best at, like the biology or the clinical development? Exactly. You're hired, Luke. That's exactly right. And Heidi and her team at uh, Provenge, um, at Dendrion running Provenge, excuse me, really did the rest of us a huge service because they, they brought Provenge to market 
absent the benefit of a cloud. Uh, so the cloud really wasn't fit for GMP type coverage and compliance. And so Heidi and her team really had no other choice than to customize a software orchestration system like we have in our version of Vinetti's personalized therapy management platform. We really think of that ProVenge, it was called IntelliVenge internally, that ProVenge system as 1.0 and our cloud-based platform, which is a SaaS continuous service platform as the second generation to come forward with the second wave of cell and gene therapy. So we were enormously lucky. We wouldn't be here without Heidi and, and her input and all of her experience and network having, you know, being the tip of the spear and, and going out first and doing the first version with a different set of tools available to, to them as a team, high expectations, high pressure, and lots and lots of learning. Yeah. Now, being an entrepreneur and being first in an area, it's hard. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and we, we talked about this a year ago. I remember when you raised your Series C round, um, you talked about the, the early days when you kind of had to go out and pound the pavement and make this pitch to companies. And a lot yeah. of pharma companies, you know, were, were playing their cards close to the vest at that time. Uh, didn't really yeah. want to say much about, you'd ask them questions about how they're handling all this stuff. And, you know, they didn't really want to say too much, or they kind of maybe bluffed like they they, they were on top of it already or didn't need what you were selling. <laughs> how would you describe the, those, those early interactions and then how that changed over time? Such a great question. And so naturally, we're, we're in an environment where the process is the product, right? So the process of genetically modifying cells is the, or genes, are, that, is the, that is what the therapeutic is. So it's this wholly different way of thinking about manufacturing. And so the early movers in this field, the Kites and the Junos and Novartis uh, in particular, really had a hard time parsing and understandably parsing what was propri proprietary from what really should be essentially table stakes in terms of manufacturing and production best practice. So there was a, as you said, there was in the very early days, four or five years ago, there was reticence around uh, sharing, oversharing anything about process because process was product. Uh, so I think what has happened since then, and even in the last year, quite frank, frankly, we've seen uh, some, I would say, humble pie in the broader pharma supply chain, especially management of this, uh, these remarkable vaccines. Anytime you put a lot of water through pipes, you're going to start to see more leaks. And so I think there's a renewed interest in what's the general health and viability of the pharma supply chain, not just the most specialized supply chains that we serve. So I think that has that realization, the backdrop of this global pandemic, plus just frankly, a, a lot of continuous learning among the prime movers in this market, lots more investment and new thinking and new eyes on the same problems that we started this industry with have brought us to much more of a, hey, okay, we actually all have to give to get here in some regards in order to advance this market. And the way to do that is to carve out places in the process that we can agree should be standardized, irregardless of protocol differentiation, but really should be a focus as an industry so that we can begin to habituate all the behaviors, all the process, all the actual, you know, conventions around labeling, for example, what, what is a patient 
a chain of identity framework that we should use universally. These sorts of questions that uh, really should be table stakes for participation in our market and will have the added benefit of increasing safety, increasing routinization, having uh, our, our, you know, setting the rails for true industrialization in this market. Lots more openness uh, we're seeing among our customers and prospects and among our other even, you know, competitors in the market to say, hey, this was working. This hasn't been working. If it would really make all of our lives easier if we could all point to the same chain of identity convention, whether we originate uh, a therapeutic process in Milan, Italy, or it's in, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that we have the same data assigned to patient uh, identity, uh, uh, regardless of, of origin or market or distribution pathway. Those sorts of things are now on the table in a way with serious focus because um, we've learned by doing. And I think uh, wherever we can find ways to streamline and simplify as an industry, we need to really do that and do it quickly. It really does seem kind of obvious as a concept that this is this is the sort of thing that can bring efficiencies uh, across the industry. Um, and yes. I, I guess for me, having covered the Dendrion story all the way back and like beginning to imagine, like, how is this thing going to work when, you know, 100 different companies try to create 100 different bespoke systems? I mean, I can't imagine trying to work at the FDA and make heads or tails of any of all this or, you know, track. Uh, right. and, and then if anything goes wrong, you know, it's just a complete mess. So well, like, yeah. coming in and doing what you're doing. And then, but, but so it's sort of like, for me, it went from an interesting, like, uh, kind of an obvious concept that somebody had to come in and do this to, mm-hmm. okay, you guys are really getting somewhere. Uh, and mm-hmm. this was almost a year ago, February of 2020, you got your series C and, and uh, I, I can't remember how much money it was, but I remember like Novartis and Gilead joined the syndicate. Yes. Uh, which said to me, like, these are the companies that have really had to like deal with these issues as mm-hmm. commercial operations. And they're feeling some of that pain, maybe. <laughs> and they, or yeah. they at least see uh, how, you know, th- this is necessary and other companies are going to need this. So we should actually just go ahead and make equity investments in this thing. Yes, that was really fortunate. That kind of partnership is rare. And I think it really does speak to the underlying sheer complexity of the market we are addressing. Uh, and I think the the sense that you know rising tide floats all boats is where do we find very specific progress opportunities as an industry and, and do it together so that Gilead and Novartis are sharing information where it's appropriate and preserving their core competencies at the same time. Uh, that's that's really that's really where we are as an industry. And, and we have a lot of gratitude for not just the openness that we're seeing, also uh, bodies like the Standards Coordinating Body, the SCB that is FDA sponsored. And we have... Um, April Lynch uh, uh, on our team sits is, sits on the board of that entity. It's these are very focused activities, very thoughtful. Lots of time and energy going into this now uh, because I think there's a growing awareness that we do have a limited window in which to establish the the basis for a market. Um, you know, there is lots being written now, as you know, and I, I think you may be among the authors on. 
how are we going to find a, a, a viable ROI on these therapies? You know, we, we today are losing money on every single CAR-T administration. That doesn't mean that we won't, we aren't absolutely committed to reversing that ratio and figuring out uh, a strategy forward. L- we absolutely L- are. Losing money, by the way, on therapies that are priced in the 375 to $475,000 range. I mean, um, that that obviously doesn't sustain. (laughs) It doesn't. And and I think the the balance of the uh, evaluation here really is around the extraordinary potential of the science. So, that's the that's the tautology we're we're working through right now as an industry is that we're just seeing the iteration under the hood in excess of Moore's law thanks to CRISPR and that is not that is not slowing down it's only accelerating Luke and, now, and now how, how do you think about the market Amy how how big yeah. is it like how many companies are are in there and how many INDs and how yeah. how, do, how do you think about that yeah it's a it's about a seventy billion dollar market today. The CAGR is the highest in the amount in the mark in the entire therapeutics market. So somewhere between 55-65% CAGR year over year. We're seeing somewhere in the order of 1,300, 1,400 uh, clinical trials in process right now in various stages of maturity. Um, the number of it's interesting, not just on the therapeutic front, but really on the ecosystem side, the number of deals and consolidation and investment, different kinds of investors, more growth oriented, private equity investors, um, really seeing their picks and axes play uh, in this market. Just an um, enormous set of tailwinds on the investor side, balanced with how do you actually produce at you know, at scale, how do you achieve mass customization? How do you reimburse? How do you implement value-based contracts? You know, what is the surrounding care protocol and payment? Um, uh, again, standard. How do you set those standards? Those are those are the that's those are the competing uh, kind of headwinds, tailwinds we're seeing right now in the market. Now for for your business model, um, how does this work? And maybe you could. Talk us through the the customer mix, because I can imagine you got some big pharma companies, a lot of small biotech companies. You got these um, investigators in academia and regulators and insurers. Like who's paying? Yeah. Who's paying you? And who gets kind of like the the free or cheap version? Because like I can't imagine like a lot of these academic centers can like pay for like fancy cloud based SaaS software like you guys provide. Well, don't yeah we we. <laughs> Or no. I guess why it might appear, yeah, no, it is pharma today who is the primary customer for our orchestration enterprise platform. And again, that's back to there is a specific regulatory requirement for pharmaceutical companies to have implemented an orchestration platform with chain of identity and custody in order to achieve commercial licensure. And there's really a strong recommendation that these companies put uh, platforms like Avenetti in place far, far ahead of the pre-commercial to uh, BLA licensure phase. So, so the FDA has it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they have they have a requirement. So the FDA aren't strictly speaking a user, but what they want to do when they're going in to evaluate a license application, in addition to all of the inspections around GMP facilities and other systems of record, they need to see 
a chain of identity, chain of custody, orchestration platform like a Vanetti in place, or you won't achieve commercial licensure. Because again, it's back to patient safety and under and really having that confidence that this pharmaceutical manufacturer knows the right patient will receive the right therapy at the right time at scale. Okay, so they have access and and it's in a format that's accessible and they understand and accept and all that. Yeah, they know that there's an audit trail to a system like ours that they can reference at any time they request it. They don't actually need to see and use the software on a daily basis, but they need to know it's there, it's working, it's validated and that they can access the data, the audit, auditable data from, from the system if there is an adverse event. So that's, that's why it's a requirement. So Pharma is our customer today. Increasingly, we're being asked to look at other workflows and parallel workflows, for example, on the clinical side, like pharmacovigilance or medical billing, which today are managed largely in a swivel chair fashion with other systems that tend to be not as um, high octane or more homebrew. Uh, so we're, we're being asked to address other workflows in a single point of control, like a Vanetti platform, not just the pharmaceutical manufacturing workflows, but that's really, uh, that's, that's coming up. That's not our platform, what's available on our platform today. Now, you mentioned at the top of the show, you've had this, obviously, the issue in the pandemic with ICU capacity being constrained and you guys, you know, operating there. Uh, That's not going to last forever. Um, People are going to have to, you know, do the cell therapy work in in ICUs again, and and that's happening. what, What would you say would be, you know, other major headwinds that you're up against? Uh, that your team is really kind of busting your pick on to try to to work through t- so you can you know achieve your five year plan. Yeah, so I think some of the issues for the market are different for our, for issues for our company. But you know, I think on the market side, we're seeing um, more CMC concerns, rightfully so, um, and safety uh, considerations. I think the early folks weren't, um, you know, who got to market first had a different kind of interaction with the agencies. Not to say that it wasn't rigorous, absolutely was, but I think we're seeing now even more concerted effort on CMC issues and, and you know, even, even um, more recent uh, headlines to that effect. Uh, so I think there's a lot of focus on how to, again, maximize potential for safety and protection in the clinical phase environment and all of the detailed work around CMC opportunity that that, that continue to, to be a point of focus for our customers. On the Vanetti side, we have- well, Wait, Amy, when you referenced the, the headlines, were, were you referring to like Bluebird in the news yeah. this week? It happened to be recent. Yeah, I, yes, exactly. It was more recent- uh, just even in this week, but it's actually most weeks we see some sort of update, not to say that it's um, terminal or, but it's just, you know, seeking more information. And, and the issue issue there is like, how do you track these patients over time? Yes. Yep, exactly. And also what are, it's, it's the, I'd say the 75% what we've seen in this in 2020, just last year, 75% of the late stage regulatory reviews in our market were delayed to some, some sort of CMC product challenge. In, in, and so our industry is looking at that really carefully. And I think you're seeing more focus from the agencies as well. 
Okay, I'm, I'm sorry I interrupted. You were talking no. about the market and then you know, like the, the specific challenges for Venetti as a company. Yeah, and I think that that the uh, the 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 opportunity on our side is how do you grow as quickly as possible in order to, and that really means number of integrations, number of workflows, or so, or and workflows mean individual products, so individual therapeutics we support, number of clinics that we're integrated into, number of other ecosystem providers, which include. The CDMOs, CROs, CRMs, MESs, the sort of alphabet soup of all the other software systems uh, or hardware systems in some cases, mostly software systems that need to be in place to put a full system in place to support these really remarkable and complex therapies. And so one of the key milestones for us this year is we are moving into a phase in which other parties, our customers, our partners in the ecosystem, uh, other consultants like system integrator partners like the Deloitte's and the Accentures of the world will increasingly be able to configure, which really means to essentially implement customers on our platform, help identify their workflow requirements, and then match those workflow requirements to modular configuration in our enterprise platform. And that's going to accelerate our ability to implement faster, higher quality um, than than we do today. Today, we're we're, uh, reliant on our own implementation engineering teams. And so working really quickly to truly extend the platform applicability, extensibility really means other uh, parties, other partners configuring for us. We don't have to configure on behalf of our customers at at every turn. So those 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 are sort of more mechanical software uh, terminology here, but that we have a number of other efforts underway too. That all of which are designed to allow our platform to go more places, be more flexible, be transparent as possible, because that's what the industry is is demanding. Okay, uh, these are these are classic challenges of yep. trying to, of trying to scale. I mean, that, exactly. that's, that, that's what you're thinking about. Exactly. Well, who, exactly. Who, who would be a, a business leader that um, that you admire in particular uh, and, and why? Oh, my gosh, there's so many. Where to choose, where to start, where to choose. Um, do you mean within cell and gene therapy? Luke, well, or are you thinking I mean, broadly, well, um, somebody that you've looked at that uh, has been successful navigating challenges, something like. I mean, this is not going to be exactly like what you're you're doing, yeah. but you know, I, I know you got Mark Benioff on your board and yeah, you know, enterprise software. I was going to go there because he's been so generous in helping us uh, share his learnings and best practice from being sort of the the king of SaaS, if you will, and really introducing the same model that we pursue um, here at Vanetti and and so many other software as a service uh, companies do follow, you know. Oh, a debt of gratitude to to Mark and his team in creating Salesforce. I think you know he he gives us very focused advice that's I think attenuated for where we are in our maturity relative to obviously where Salesforce you know as a Dow company now is is in a much different um, uh, vaulted uh, vantage point. So I, I think his the other part of of Mark's leadership, of course, that I'm. I, I admire and seek to emulate in my own humble way, wherever I can, is just his activism and uh, connection with the broader 
universal community, not just the um, sort of high tech tip of the spear, innovative Silicon Valley world. Uh, He's so thoughtful and oriented around that broader social discussion and how, how social dynamics. And I think, you know, influence business and where business is an appropriate voice and where it's not. And, and I think, you know, it's a very different um, point of view and position in society. He holds from some of his peers in other pure technology places. And I think he's managed to navigate um, again with some, some appropriateness where his voice is most uh, powerful and, and where it's, it's less appropriate, which I think is, is, you know, shows a a great deal of self-awareness. Well, you know, business can't solve all the problems in the world. I mean, you got your area and we alluded to it earlier, the sustainability of the cell and gene therapy industry hinges heavily on price. (laughs) And one of the things that, you know, I mean, you got a role to play here in terms of bringing some efficiencies that um, hopefully, you know, could could contribute to some lower price therapies and, and hopefully wider access. Not, I mean, like I say, we all have a role to play and nobody, but um, I can yes. see one, one clear that that's one place where you actually can make a difference if you're successful. Um, yes, I agree. <laughs> so um, last couple of things I want to squeeze in here, Amy, uh, I noticed on your, uh, on your LinkedIn page that you're planning to attend a class uh, on culture, uh, a quilt mm-hmm. maker versus puzzle builder. Uh, for company culture, what's the difference, and why should your company take the leap? And I gotta confess, I don't really know what that means or what that is. So, what is that, and and how? Uh, why is that relevant to you? Well, you know, I am a. <laughs> I don't know whether it is relevant until I'm in the class loop, to be honest. But I think there is a level of. I feel there's a level of puzzle building in any culture, and every single culture, you know, culture is is a party of two or more, in my opinion. And so anytime you've got two or more human beings, you've got cultural dynamics. And uh, and so we've, especially with the backdrop, all the civil unrest, Black Lives Matter, we as a company have done a lot of work, continue to do a lot of work on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and really have a, a growing, uh, I hope, awareness. I think, you know, we, we again, it's a work in progress. Uh, that's just one particular strain of culture that we've been thinking, uh, especially uh, a lot about of, of of late in the last year in particular. Um, I'm always looking to learn, so I think that the opportunity to have a broader dialogue on on such a fundamental core attribute of culture in in the here and now is is really important. Uh, and I don't know exactly what puzzle. Every culture is a puzzle and continuously adding new pieces. And so uh, <laughs> so I think this really is the spirit of, I try to carve out time wherever I can to talk to mentors or read or attend LinkedIn or other um, online, increasingly online opportunities to engage in topics that I think are crucial, uh, not just for success from a business standpoint, but just really more on a human level. How are we interacting and how can we optimize our interactions? How can we find more empathy? Uh, there's always there's always room for, for learning and expansion. Well, that's great. The best business leaders are truly lifelong learners. Uh, last thing I want to ask you, Amy, what's a good book or two that you've read lately? I read Leadership by Gail uh, 
uh, Kearns Godwin. And I don't know if that, um, if you know this book. Oh, D- Doris Kearns Godwin, yeah. Oh God, what did I say? Uh, never, never mind. <laughs> yeah, thank you, dyslexic. Um, Doris Kearns Godwin, yeah, it's her her book leadership about, um, she details four presidencies in crisis and derives some really interesting comparisons among leadership styles and um, always just incredibly insightful and economical in her writing. I always appreciate uh, her writing. We um, we have also as a team been reading Essentialism. Uh, I think that's probably some, so someone in my network reads that book every year and I can understand why now as I've read it more than once. Always something new to learn. Uh, but I do, I do find it particularly in this backdrop of civil unrest of lots of agitation on the political front. We're seeing different levels of agitation. Finding historical analysis or fiction um, is, is I'm particularly drawn to right now. Amy DeRoss, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about yourself and your company today on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. It's really fun. Always enjoy speaking to you. Thank you so much for taking time with me. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.